Well, this morning, uh, the message is going to be different than what I had originally planned. Uh, as I was just praying and as I was thinking about the parent-child dedications and thinking about the grad Sunday, um, originally this morning was supposed to be uh, the closeout of our unbelievable uh, series, the story of the early church, and it was going to be about holiness. And we're going to talk about what it was going to be to live this lifestyle that is different than the rest of the world. But more and more, I felt led to say that this morning we're going to talk about an unbelievable future. An unbelievable future that the early church saw and was motivated by and an unbelievable future that we still have today. And as I was thinking about the grad, someone recently told me about this thing called the Beloit Mindset List. Anyone ever heard of this before? It's recently changed its name. But essentially what it is, it's this produced by this college uh, for, in particular, professors uh, at universities. And the whole idea is that there's this mindset list that's produced so that way the professors can have a general idea of their incoming freshmen, what has kind of shaped them in life. Because whether we know it or not, whether we believe it or not, so much of who we are is shaped by experiences. I mean, think about it. Each generation is shaped by different experiences. Uh, you know, for example, I did not grow up uh, in the time of Kennedy, but my parents could tell you exactly where they were when they found out that Kennedy was shot. My grandparents knew, can remember Pearl Harbor. They can remember the wars. And what's interesting for many of us in here, especially if you're more uh, in the 20s, 30 age like me or even 40s, you can specifically remember right where you were when 9-11 happened. There are certain moments that shape our, our thought process, our values, the, the way we live. But I wanted, to, I wanted to share with you guys to make some of you guys feel old like me because, again, I've been feeling old. I turned 30 this year. I recently got shingles, so I am feeling very old. Thinking about trying a prune juice diet soon. Um, anyways, but think about this. So most of the graduating uh, high schoolers this year were probably born between 2000 and 2001. Make you feel old yet? So they're, 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 they're babies who never lived through the 90s. Isn't that just kind of wild? So think about this. Most of them were either barely alive for 9-11 or weren't yet. They wouldn't have the same recollection like we were. They have no real concept of the scare of Y2K. Think about that. Remember that? Anyone build a bunker? Be honest. No, I'm just kidding. They've always been able to refer to Wikipedia or say phrases like, just Google that. There's always been hybrid cars, and they aren't necessarily a novelty. They're a normality now. Keurig coffee has always been a thing. GPS also has always been around. And think about this one. This one's kind of interesting. Wi-Fi has always been a everywhere thing that's just sort of a matter of fact. Anyone ever remember when there were fast food restaurants that first started bringing out Wi-Fi and you'd go there with your iPod touch? Anyone? Yeah. And think about this. Among those who have never been alive in these graduates' lifetimes, Princess Diana, John Bidet Ramsey, Tupac, Mother Teresa, and the notorious B.I.G. You know, all the same kind of categories of very similar people. Think about that, though, right? In about an 18-year period, a lot has changed, right? And that's just scratching the surface on some of these lists. It's crazy how quickly life, culture, technology changes. And some of you are like, you're a baby. You don't even know yet, and you are right. But it's crazy how 
things slowly change. And it's even crazy when I think about how much, even in my lifetime, things have changed in terms of Christianity, church, and faith in our culture and our country. You know, I love when I go to the beach. And I love when I can just listen to the waves. Anyone else just, it's, it's therapeutic when the waves are rolling in. I also learned kind of the hard way the first time, uh, one of the first times I'd ever went down to the ocean. See, I grew up in, in Michigan, God's country, where, where the Lord resides most heavily. And uh, we have these things called the Great Lakes, which are much better than the ocean because there's not sharks. Um, just saying. Uh, but one thing that they don't necessarily have that the ocean has is really intense tide, right? How many of you guys would be willing to admit before that you've totally gotten hit by the tide? You didn't realize that the tide was somewhere, you set up camp and you just fell asleep or something, and wham, it got you. You know, when I think about the current culture, the tide is interesting. And, and this is something I heard, heard from a much smarter person than I recently, but I really resonate with. Is in many ways, in culture right now, Christianity, the church, faith, Jesus, it feels like the tide has gone out. And you know, as the tide goes out, what's interesting is it gives this false sense of the fact that ground has been deeply lost. You slowly get to this point where when the tide is out, sometimes it gets warm enough, it gets dry enough, where it looks like the water had never been there. It looks like things have just changed and this is how it will always be. And yet, you know what's really interesting about the tide? It always comes back in. It always comes back in. And do you know what the other thing that's really interesting about the tide is? The longer it's out, the stronger it comes back in. I believe with all my heart that while some of us may be beginning to feel like the future of the church, the future of Christianity as we know it, is in deep and dark trouble. We feel like we've lost so much ground. I truly feel that though the tide may feel like it has gone back out, and it may seem like it will never come back in, I really feel with all my might that the Lord is working and that revival is coming. But the thing is, Maybe the future is going to be different than the past. Maybe what we've longed for, what we feel like we missed, the ground that we feel like we've lost, maybe it's not truly the ground that Jesus would most care about. That maybe the cultural Christianity that we've longed for, that we miss the comfort of, I believe maybe the tide is going to come back in with a more authentic and more spirit-led church. And I'm excited for that. This morning, what I'd like to do is I would love to just talk a little bit about what we see in the early church, how they were motivated by an amazing, unbelievable future that they had. And that because of their unbelievable future, what can we learn, because we're living this future today, what can we learn and how can we engage in this? See, what's interesting is that the early church while being engaged in the present, was motivated by the future. They, they, they lived in the moment. They were so focused, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But the reality was their eye was always on the future. They always knew how the end would turn out. And there's something beautiful about when you know the end of the story, you don't have to be afraid in the middle, right? It's kind of like when you watch a movie for the second time. 
Maybe the first time you kind of are like a ball of nerves because you don't know what's going to happen. And you're worried, even though, like, let's be honest, most every movie ends with a happy story for the most part. So you should just kind of know it's going to work out. You just have to figure out, all right, is there 30 minutes left? Is there 10 minutes left? If there's 10 minutes left, it's about to turn really good. But it's like when you watch a movie for the second time and you know what the end is going to be. So you don't have to be afraid of the moments that are going to be jumpy. You don't have to be afraid whether or not things are going to turn out well. You already know how it's going to turn out. And my friends, I, I really believe uh, that, that, that we as the church, uh, if we would begin to engage today in the present and be motivated by the future, that amazing things could happen for the kingdom. Now, let's go back to the Gospels for a minute. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 through 19. And let me tell you the moment that happens before this moment. So you have Jesus and his disciples. They are hanging out, and, 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 and what ends up happening, uh, to make a long story short, is eventually Peter, who is, well, he's Simon actually at this moment. Simon, who is one of his disciples, proclaims for the very first time, the very first person he proclaims and says, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He is who we've been longing for and waiting for. And upon this proclamation of being really the first Christian, the first Christ follower, the first one to confess this, this is what Jesus says to him. He says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overcome it. Now, what does that even mean? Can you imagine if you just got a midlife name change? Like, wouldn't that be kind of frightening and kind of weird to all of a sudden just go from one name to another? Peter, though, gets the name Peter. And, and, and no matter what language you look at, whether it's Greek or Aramaic, it always translates back to this idea of being a rock. Now, a misinterpretation of this that sometimes happens is, does this mean that Peter is truly the foundation of the church? Does this mean that he is sort of the gatekeeper? Does he become, maybe as the Catholic Church would say, is he the Pope? Is he the one who has supreme authority on earth? I don't believe so. I believe what he is saying is that Jesus is already the foundation. In fact, he says he's the cornerstone of the whole thing but that Peter becomes the very first block in this new temple, this new place in which God resides, in which holiness happens, in which all of these uh, new way of life that Jesus has is going to happen. But it's interesting because Jesus makes a promise in this moment, right? He says that upon this church that will be built, not even the powers, the gates of of Hades or hell, however you want to put it, which really just means not even the evil, dark forces of this world, not even the enemy can overcome it. Now, can I be real with you guys for a minute? Can Can I talk very plainly? I get so frustrated when people discount the words of Jesus in many ways, but one of the ways that I get very frustrated is, is when I hear people talk about things like this. Well, the world's just, you know, it's going to hell in a handbasket. Things are worse than it ever will be. All of this thing is going down. And these are Christians, right? They're, they're posting out like, well, this, this election happened. We're done for. It's all over. Will the church even ever happen anymore? What happened to decency and Christianity? And, and, and believe me, I get it. I get why we feel this sense of insecurity going on because of these things. But can I be honest with you? 
Where's your hope? Where's your faith? Where is this belief that Jesus, every single word that he said, is truth? Every single promise that he made, he'll come through on. You see, I wonder if what we fear losing is stuff that Jesus doesn't really say, I care that much about. I wonder if Jesus says, listen, I never promised you that you would be the dominant belief in a culture. I never promised you that you would have power in politics. In fact, he, I think in some ways he probably said power in, 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 with, with politics and things like that doesn't always go well. I think what is a difficult reality for many of us is that we want to go back to the way things were. And that nostalgia is kind of a false reality, right? When we think back to nostalgic things, whenever I hear the word nostalgia, I never hear anyone share bad things, right? When they say, I wish it was like the good old days, they never mention how maybe the good old days wasn't good for everybody. Or they don't mention the fact that there were certain things about the good old days that we're able to prevent now. You see, I I feel like sometimes what ends up happening is similar to what happened in the Old Testament, where God took the Israelite people out of enslavement in Egypt, and he he promised them a promised land, and they they were caught in this waiting period because of this unfaithfulness, and they wanted to go back to Israel because all they could remember was the good parts of Israel. They couldn't see any of the bad. They forgot, oh, yeah, we were enslaved. My friends, I wonder if... We have been stuck in this rut of being so focused on the past that it sabotaged our future. That we think that if we just work hard enough to get back to the way things were, if we just dressed like we used to, if we just sang the songs like we used to, if we just had all of the same things like we used to, and we try it harder and faster and longer, that obviously everything will work itself out. And may I say to you that maybe Jesus isn't hanging out just in the past, that he's here in the present and he wants to guide us to a new future. That maybe, like the early church, we need to care more about the mission than the methods in which we are reaching that mission. And that's a hard reality because change can be difficult. But here's the good news. Fear is so much less powerful. The unknown is so much less scary when we know the end result. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 8, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he, he says this. I think this is great. He says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are, are achieving for us a eternal glory that far outweighs them. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen? Since then, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You know, I think one of our fears, I think one of our issues in, in really looking and walking into the future that God has for us as individuals and as the church is the fact that we get so focused on temporary things. We get so focused on our own needs and wants. We get so focused on the wind and the waves that are happening in us, and we forget the fact that we have the Savior of all the universe who stands in the storm, who walks out onto the water, who meets us right where we are. 
And that when we're with him, we don't have to worry about what's going on around us. Yes, we care about it. Yes, we do invest in the problems of this world. Yes, we do try to bring the kingdom of heaven here to earth. But there's this reality that we don't have to worry if we have an eternal mindset. We don't have to just let this cripple us. And we don't have to just say, let's go backwards. You see, I wonder what would happen if we lived more like the early church fathers. And one of the things I think they did is that they were invested in their present because they knew it determined theirs and others' eternities. And this is what I would say to us. We must live as if our present determines ours and others' eternity. I mean, think about that. That's a hard reality. But everything I read from Jesus says what we do in this life matters. We are saved by by grace through faith in Jesus, 100%. It's not works, but there's this reality that this faith, this life change that happens to us changes us to that way this inward change begins an outward expression of love to our neighbors. And there's this reality that many of us, if we're honest, we live so much in the immediate temporary time that we've sabotaged our future in other people's future. It's amazing to me when I read Acts, when I read uh, just some of the other parts of uh, some other parts of the New Testament, and I realize the lengths in which some of those disciples, those early apostles were willing to go. Beatings, imprisonments. They quite literally left their, their family. It would be like one of us today just saying, I'm selling everything and I'm moving across the country. I'm moving uh, to, to another country just so I can share the good news with Jesus. They were so sold out on this because they really believed it was real. And the truth is, and I'm just going to tell you all, I'm as guilty as anyone else, probably more so. If we were to take inventories of our lives, we don't live with the future in mind. We live as if we're going to be here forever. Most of us seek to build our own kingdoms. Most of us seek our own pleasure and comfort. The reality is most of us spend a very small time, a very small amount of our resources on helping others come to know Jesus Christ. Yet if we really believe that he is the Lord of Lords, that he is the King of Kings, that his kingdom matters, that what we do in life matters for eternity, We have to begin to take a new look at what we're doing. You know, I think one of actually the issues for the American church, why we are where we are, isn't just because culture has changed and and everything is bad and, and Satan has a foothold and all this. I think so much of it is we stopped actually following the gospel. We stopped actually saying that this becomes who I am, not just this small little side category of my life. And like I said, y'all, I'm as guilty as anyone else. If I'm honest, I want pleasure. I want comfort. I don't want to think about those things. And yet the reality is, is that if I want a future for my family, if I want a future for the church, it's going to cost some skin in the game. It's going to mean that I have to order my life differently. It means that I can't just say, I think what Jesus says is really cool. I think he's got a great beard. I love the fact that he's always hanging out with lambs and kids. That seems really nice. 
But it means that I must begin to actually go back to what the scriptures say and live the life that he's called to me, even though it's hard, even though it's countercultural. I think the issue became for us as a church, not this church, but the kind of church in Western culture is we so much wanted to make ourselves dictate culture that we forgot that Jesus was such a countercultural person. His movement was so countercultural, it was never meant to be said, this will become the dominant culture. We're going to just force everyone to, to follow along this way. He's saying, no, 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 it's hard. Think about it. When he got a massive group of people following him, what most people would say, all right, this is where we start having a huge PR campaign. This is where we start giving away things to get people hooked in. Jesus turned around when he had this huge group of followers and basically said, hey, if you really want to follow after me, you have to just basically lose your life, pick up your cross and follow me. What inspiring, welcoming words. Am I right? And yet there's this reality that we can't have the life that we see that Jesus has promised for us if we don't change things. If we're not willing to, have, to, 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 to change who we are, to begin to be shaped into the image of Jesus rather than just trying to shape the image of culture into a cultural Christianity. My friends, we have not truly lost ground. We've just been exposed to the reality that there have been some false Christianity that has been in the midst of us. And the good news is it gives way to the true Christianity. The good news is the next generation, I believe, has a huge opportunity to do some amazing things in the name of Jesus. And I really believe that. And it's not going to look the same as what it looked like in the past. They're going to do fresh expressions, new ways. Church may look different. And you know what I actually believe is going to happen? As we have seen a rise of digital consumption, and as we have seen a rise of people being more connected but more disconnected at the same time, I believe that the church of Jesus Christ has a huge opportunity to fulfill authentic relationship with other humans that every human deeply and desperately desires. And I actually believe that the church of the future will do better than we ever have at engaging into deep relationships. I really believe that. I believe that there is a rising generation who are going to be sold out for the gospel in ways that I wish I could say that I have been. I really believe that. In Philippians chapter 3, it just says this, Brothers and sisters, this is Paul speaking, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards my goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I read that scripture this morning to you to say this, too many of us have stopped moving. Too many of us have wanted a moment with Jesus when Jesus wants a movement. Too many of us have wanted to just have this, this great moment where, 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 where we have, have had this moment where we say, I feel great, I feel, I feel like I know Jesus, and now this is done. I can check this experience off my box. We live in a culture that is very much experience-focused. I'm not even saying that's bad. We've actually, in some ways, generationally, there's been a counter from... Um, most parenting, most uh, children desiring things 
to experiences becoming the new sort of great thing. And experiences are great, don't get me wrong, but many of us even do that with faith. We say we want this momentary experience with Jesus, but we don't really actually want it to change us. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. As Paul said, this isn't something that we we have a moment, we stop, things are good, it never changes. No, 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 it's this thing that we keep pressing forward on. We never stop. We never say this is good enough. We never say, uh, I, 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 I've shared the gospel with enough people. I've loved my neighbor enough. We never get to this point where Jesus says, all right, stop, you're good. Not here on this side of eternity. Now, how do we know that we have to do these things? What's interesting is, uh, I won't read all of them right now, but if you go to Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and read it sometimes, there are these letters that Jesus wrote to these seven churches. And most of them, he did not have great things to say. You know what's interesting about the seven churches? None of those actual churches are still in existence. There may be aspects in which they have, have carried on, but it's interesting. Do you realize, this is probably a weird, hard thing to say, but someday this church will not exist. There probably will be a day someday in the future where this, this building may not be here. A church may not gather in this. I don't see that any time in the future, anytime super soon. But there's this reality that churches have, in some ways, a lifespan. Not the church, but churches. But here's what, what we find that Jesus said to some of these churches that was their issues. Why? They needed to change if they wanted an unbelievable future. Some of them, it was because they were being too fearful. They weren't bold enough. They weren't really seeking the mission. Some of them were unpure. They weren't holy. They, 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 there was nothing about them that was set apart. They had allowed themselves to proclaim the name of Jesus without following the ways of Jesus. For some, it was they were following false teaching, or at least they were allowing it. They were saying, well, this false teaching, we're not really teaching it, but we're also just going to be like, yeah, you can come in and hang out with us. For some, it was the fact that they were coasting. They were walking the walk without, or they were talking the talk without walking the walk. They did very much the mindset of, we did some really great things here, and now we just get to coast. It was this idea of, we made this investment early on, now we can kind of just coast our way unto eternity. For some, it was this idea that they were lukewarm. There was nothing really distinctive about them, but there was nothing that was terrible about them. And there was this reality that nothing about the gospel that they preached and lived had any sort of power. And for some, this one hits me the hardest because I can relate sometimes. They forgot their first love. They forgot Jesus. They had done some great things. They were invested in their community. They were some, doing some really cool things but they had lost their love for Jesus. And there's this reality that if we miss Jesus, we miss everything. That if we lose out on this relational love for Jesus, we miss out on everything. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, it says this, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as one who has called you is holy, so you be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Friends, I think if we want an unbelievable future, I do believe it comes back to holiness. This idea of not holier than now, not perfect, 
but this idea of seeking the ways of Jesus and not picking and choosing which ones we like. We can't say, I like the grace of Jesus Christ, but I don't like the sexual ethics of Jesus Christ. We can't say, ooh, I really like his idea of forgiveness of my sins, but I'm not so down with the forgiveness of others who sin against me. We can't say, I love the idea that there's treasure in heaven for me, but I don't really like the idea of having to do with my treasure here on earth what he says. There's this reality that we have to be transformed and conformed into the image of Christ. Otherwise, the truth is we don't have an unbelievable future. We have a really sad future. But the truth is I believe that God wants to do some amazing things. This is what I really believe, truly. I believe that revival is coming, but it starts in each of our own hearts. That there's a sad reality that many of the people who I have heard saying, man, I wish the church would come alive again, have not really sought to allow Christ to come alive in them again. That we want some of the benefits of Christianity without actually seeking the Christ himself. And the truth is, is that if we want a revival, we want something, this fire to catch again, we have to do this. We can't expect culture to change if we ourselves don't change. It just cannot happen. So as the band comes back up, they're going to play one more song. Let me, let me leave you with this, uh, this from Romans chapter 15. And this is somewhat of a prayer that I have for each and every single one of us. That the God, that may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's my hope. I hope that we begin to become again people of hope. That we begin to become again people of prayer. People who seek the Holy Spirit. And that just as the early church did, we don't look just back at the past, but we look forward to the future. Imagine if the early disciples just said, we're going to stay right here how we feel like things should go. Truth is, most of us would never be here. It'd just be full of Jewish people. Most of us would have never seen the gospel reach this part of the world. But there's this reality that when we live with an eternal mindset, when we live with a a sense of hope, when we enter into small battles, understanding that the war has already been won, we can live in a different way. And I believe that while we may not see some of these things in our time, in our generation, I believe that there is so much work we could do today to build up the church, to hand off the keys to the kingdom to the next generation. You know, it's interesting. You saw that with with Paul doing it with Timothy. And I believe many of us today could find people in our lives. Maybe it's our children, our grandchildren. And maybe we could begin to impart to them not pieces of a cultural Christianity that we long for that has, has long been gone now, But if we could begin to impart with them biblical Christianity, Christianity that we see that cares about the poor and the marginalized, biblical Christianity that believes that the power of God, that the Holy Spirit is still active and moving, and a Christianity that believes that community is not an optional thing, but it is a way of life. Man, I believe amazing things could happen. I believe the church has an unbelievable future. I truly believe that the tide is going to come back in. And when it comes back in, it is going to blow away this world in an amazing way. 
It's going to blow away the structures that we've tried to make when we've tried to make Christ and the church in our own image. And the tide is just going to rush in and break that away. And I believe that the ground that we feel like has been lost will be proclaimed once more for Jesus in his kingdom. The big question for each one of us has to be this morning, though. Are we willing to allow God to begin to revive our own hearts and our own lives? I'm going to ask you guys to stand. And I'm going to pray and we're going to sing a song. Would you guys pray with me? God, I thank you for the fact that, God, you are the God who has been in our past. That you're the God who is in the midst of our present. But, God, also you are the God who is walking ahead of us and pushing us into the future. God, I pray that you would do things that would make us feel uncomfortable. God, I pray that you would do things that would lead us into the future that you want, not that we want. God, I pray, though, most of all, that, God, before any sort of revival, any sort of reawakening happens in our country and in our world, God, that it would first begin inside our own hearts. God, this morning I pray for each person in this room. God, some have a long history with you. God, some maybe this morning could be the very first time that they cross the line and say that you are Lord. God, I pray that if anyone never has accepted you as Savior, or God, maybe if someone has walked away, God, I pray that this morning could begin a new life for them, a revival for them. God, would they know that all they have to do is reach out and and just ask you through prayer, saying, Lord, forgive me for where I've been wrong. Forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for when I have neglected who you say I am and who you are. And he is good to forgive you. And just ask him to become the Lord of your life. To say, Lord, I want to be a disciple of your son, Jesus. God, I just don't want to have this ticket into heaven. God, I want to be a part of the kingdom right now in this moment. God, I pray that each one of us, God, would have this fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit upon us. And God, I pray that out of that, that God, you would do it again. God, the way that you spread the early church. God, the way that throughout history, God, we've seen amazing revivals in this country and around the world. God, I know that you can do it again. But God, would it start in us? And God, would we believe? Would we begin to walk towards what you have for us? So God, I pray in this moment that the Holy Spirit would come. And God, I pray that we would just begin to be shaped and transformed into the image of your son, Jesus. God, we love you. We praise you. We want to follow you. And God, we believe that you will do it again. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.